You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You may recall that after Jesus' resurrection, there are a number of post-resurrection appearances he makes before he ascends to heaven where he is now. Well, one of those early post appearances, he appears to 10 of the disciples. And you may recall that he, it says he opened their minds so that they would understand that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were all about him. And that's why we're looking at Christmas in the Psalms, to recognize there are some Psalms where that connection is very overt, very clear. Like last week, Psalm 2 is one of those where it's so clear. There are other Psalms where the connection is a lot more subtle, but yet it is there. And it's the latter category that Psalm 8 fits into. So as you look in your Bibles at Psalm 8, let me give you a couple of tips to better understand this passage. The first one is we we need to read Psalms in sequence. So we have a tendency, if you look at Psalm 8, to think Psalm 8 has nothing to do with the Psalms before it. But actually, we should see the entire book as a sequential book. In other words, Psalm 1 and 2 is an excellent introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Psalms 3 through 7 are all laments. It's where the writer is calling out to God for deliverance. So it's with that backdrop that then we come to Psalm 8 that speaks of the majesty and glory of God. So reading them in sequence, kind of realizing they're connected is very important. Secondly, one of the things I think we've learned is always look at the title if it has a title. Uh, And in this case, you notice Psalm 8, again, says for the director of music, so it was intended to be a part of the liturgy and worship of the people of God. Uh, But it says, according to Giddeth, a psalm of David. And there are two possible ways you could understand this Hebrew phrase, Giddeth. Uh, It may simply be a musical notation of some sort. So for the, the worship leader, this would be something that would indicate possibly musically how this was to be done. Uh, it's also possible, some say, Giddeth refers to it's to be played on an instrument from Gath. And that's also a possibility. Uh, we don't really know the context of behind this psalm. 
And you'll hear different views. Some say it was related to David's victory over Goliath, and it's kind of proclaiming God. But we don't know definitively. But we do know it's a psalm of David, and we do know it has a very clear message in it. The other thing you probably caught quickly was verse 1 and verse 9 repeat the same refrain. And this is an important literary technique. It can happen in a chapter like this. It can happen in subsections of a chapter. It is called an inclusio. It's a, it's a way that the passage locks together. So to begin with, our Lord, our God, how majestic is your name, to conclude that way kind of says, wow, this passage is all about God. And I can't think of a better subject at this time of year when we are so easily distracted by so many other things that get wrapped up in the celebration of Christmas to kind of come back to, wait, it's, it's all about God. So we're going to look at this psalm in particular. What does it reveal about God's glory? And so notice the first four verses. The first four verses give us a first glimpse into, it reveals the glory of God in creation. And how appropriate, based on the choruses we just sung, to, to step back and think, we see the glory of God in creation. Notice verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The glory of God is first and foremost rooted in God's character. It is, it is who he is. He is glorious. He is truthful. He is all those attributes that we've studied together and we've discussed in many other spheres of learning. So when we look at the glory of God, this is who he is. And the word that's majesty there is he, he's superior. He is exalted over everything. There is no one higher, no one more worthy of praise and honor than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so even though this psalm is going to mention God, we quickly know through the New Testament of the Trinity, and we understand when we praise one, we, we are praising all three. But notice the, the terms there in that first opening line, O Lord, our Lord. And you probably noticed the difference in punctuation because the first Lord is all capitals and the second just has a capital L. And the reason for this is your translators are letting you know these are two different words in Hebrew. That the first one is the title Yahweh. So the, the covenant-keeping name of God. The, the name that God revealed to Moses when Moses said, who, who will I say has sent me? And God says, I am. In other words, he's, he's self-sufficient. He has life in himself. Nothing caused him to come into existence. He always was and always will be. That's the title Yahweh, which typically is rendered with all caps in the Old Testament. The second title, Lord there, emphasizes Adonai that he's a ruler. Uh, I thought it was interesting. There's something called the Bishop's Bible uh, that was produced in England. And in that Bible, it says, our Lord, our governor. Kind of this reminder, he's, he's over everything. He is to govern and control and provide for his creation. Notice that verse 2, or the end of verse 1 goes on. You have set your glory 
above the heavens. You, you've placed it there. It's established. It's fixed. It, it's not going to change. Because the glory of God is rooted in the character of God. Not, not in circumstances. Not, not in our emotions, what we're feeling at this moment towards God. That has nothing to do with who God is. So it's an interesting tone to begin this really song for worship because it doesn't begin like a lot of other psalms that begin with a call to worship. This begins with an exclamation to worship. Like not get ready to worship. This is worship. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But God's glory is revealed, oddly enough, in the next verse, through weakness. Because notice what it says. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. So here, God is going to display his glory, but, but not like the world would say. He's going to display it through weakness that he will bring to silence the enemies of God. He will cause them to cease through his power displayed in weakness. And all I need to ask and for you to think about is, well, where is that weakness? It's not in God. The weakness is you and me. God's glory is going to be displayed through believers as we learn to depend upon him. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is the first of three places in the New Testament where Psalm 8 is quoted in part. So remember I said that there are Psalms that are very directly, we might say, messianic. Like you can pick out right away. It's, it's about Christ. But there's other Psalms where it's, it's sort of subtle. And we need the New Testament to possibly help pull out what, what is there, but, but not clearly revealed. So notice Matthew 21. And if you look with me at verses 14 through 16, you have Jesus uh, enters the city of Jerusalem. Remember his triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And then either late that night or early next morning, he goes into the temple and he clears the temple again. Notice what it says there in this scene, beginning at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. What was Jesus really doing? He was helping us understand what was Psalm 8 talking about. That, that it was a psalm praising God's glory in creation, but it was also a reminder of how God's glory would be displayed through what is considered in the eyes of our world weak. Here children who, who are proclaiming him. Uh, you have a similar note if you would like to turn to 1 Corinthians 2 uh, of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Uh, 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, as you know from the title of this letter, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a major city. Uh, it was known for its impressive speakers that would come to the city to, to speak and kind of gain a following. So it would be maybe the uh, you know, equivalent if, uh, I don't know, if this church, if every week you had some celebrity speaker, just think of some Christian who's just known for their speaking abilities, and you had them coming every week, and then someone like me or someone else came, and they were going to fill the pulpit one Sunday. Like, you can imagine the pressure. Like, you, 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 you have to try to sound like them. Paul says, when I came to Corinth, that was not what I did. And notice what he writes here in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What a clear echoing of, of Jesus' quoting of Psalm 8, and now Paul saying, this is the pattern of my, my ministry, the model. I, I come not to impress you. If anything, I want you to see that I'm weak, that I'm frail, that I have struggles, because you'll see God's power best then, magnified in me and through me. What a reminder, in, again, in a day and an age which we get so focused on appearances uh, that we even start naming different kind of psychological struggles after pe people feeling that they're comparing themselves, that they're missing out between what other people post sometimes on Instagram and things like that. Let's go back to Psalm 8. And so we've talked about the first aspect here, the glory of God revealed in creation. And that's first rooted in God's character. Secondly, as we've seen, uh, it is revealed through weakness. And Matthew 21 helped interpret that for us based on Psalm 8. But also when we get to... God's glory revealed in creation, you have the physical world around us. And that is emphasized in verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says there. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I love how he says, first, when I consider, when, when I stop and think, when, when I slow down, when I meditate and intentionally look around me. And notice he says, your heavens. So often I think we think this world is, is our playground. You know, it's for us. I think we live in an area where you have tourists who are going to come in, especially once we get snow, skiing, snowmobiling, you know, ice fishing. Those are all things great, but where is the attention in all that? That's not, well, this creation's for me. It, it's for me to just enjoy. 
And here you have reminded that the creation is to reveal to us the glory of God. It renders all of us without excuse for not worshiping him. And even the very detail and language David uses here when he says, uh, the work of your fingers. So I think of Jean as a machinist. I think of others who, who use their hands and are able to do things. Like you're talking about skillful. Where the skill of God in terms of how he intricately designed our creation. Everything is fine-tuned from the distance earth is from the sun and everything else. It, it points to really the glory of God. Many of you probably can remember when Apollo 11 mission was going to the moon. Uh, in preparation for that, uh, they asked a number of key leaders, UN officials, uh, others in society, to, to give something that they would like to have recorded. And it was left on the moon. It was made on a disk, and they were going to leave it on the moon. Well, they got a number of different things. Very interesting, Pope Paul VI selected something that he wanted saved and taken on this trip to the moon and left there. You know what he selected? Psalm 8. Because it speaks of the glory of God in creation. It's a sort of an interesting thought. We have this silent testimony somewhere on the moon. Psalm 8 is sitting there. So we, no wonder we're all without excuse. But let's look at verse 4, because the magnitude of who God is, the glory of God in creation, leaves us with this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. I mean, isn't that what it should bring us right to our knees, saying, who, who are we? In comparison to the greatness and magnitude of God, I saw something advertised on Amazon this week. It seems like it's a popular seller. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, friendship lamps. And, and what these are is you, they come in a pair, so you buy them, and then you give one to your friend, wherever they might live, and it's wireless. So you've got to hook up to the internet. So what this is, is if you're at home and you happen to think of your friend, you touch your lamp, and their lamp will light. Doesn't that tell us there's something about, in all of us, we like it to know people are thinking about us. I had a, a, a situation this week. I found out a, a former student of mine many years ago uh, is quite sick, has leukemia. And so I reached out to the mother. Uh, just because I haven't seen this student in a long time. They're out of the area. Um, and it just struck me when I reached out to her to talk. I told her who I was, and of course she remembered me, but then there was just silence. She was crying. And then she simply said, well, that means so much to me that, that you would call. Now, I didn't do anything, but isn't there something there when we think, wow, someone is thinking about me. They're, they're praying for me. And so you have the psalmist here say, if you think of the glory of God, that automatically now both is humbling, but it tells us about the glory of God in humanity. Because listen to what he says here, that this glory of God is embedded 
on each of us because we're made in the image of God. So notice there as we look at this in verse 5, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now this at this point is not talking about Jesus. So when it says, what is man, what is the son of man, the immediate context is he's talking about humanity, about how we are created. And because we're image bearers, we have an inherent honor and glory. Now, right away, as you look at verse 5, when it says, you crowned him with glory and honor. Not, not that we're equal to God, nothing at all, but, but we have inherent honor and worth. Compare that to the philosophy in a postmodern world today. What, what is the big question everyone's wrestling with or talking about? Identity. Who gets to determine your identity? And, and our world has completely twisted this to say, well, that, that's up to you. You know, you, you determine it. And however long it might take you or it can change throughout life, that, that's kind of a burden you're going to have to deal with. Notice this is saying from a biblical perspective, your identity is not something you determine. Your creator determines that. And not just, I think, your, your sexual identity, but but. But who you are is grounded in who God is, that we are made in his image. Some Old Testament scholars have referred to this psalm as the stargazers psalm. And the reason they pick that is they, they imagine David maybe being out in the fields as a shepherd, just kind of looking at everything, saying, wow. You know, and, and then stepping back and realizing this glory of God in a much lower degree is shared by every one of his creation. And you can tell as you, as you listen to this, sounds a lot like Genesis 1. You know, about God creating us. Um, notice in verse 6, it says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. So he speaks about the dominion that, that we have because we're made in the image of God. A, a stewardship that we have. We don't, we don't own it. It's not our world. It's, it's God's world. But he has graciously given us dominion over it. If you've ever heard Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where God creates the male and female and then says, be fruitful, multiply, go out and subdue the world, that's often called the cultural mandate. In other words, here is God's command because we're made in his image. And so David is picking up on that saying, this is a glory of God that is displayed through humanity. Now, I don't need to remind you, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, is followed by Genesis chapter 3, the fall. So that perfect design, that perfect reflection of glory has been distorted, perverted, not lost, but damaged and broken by sin. 
And so now rather than glorifying God and how we steward all that's around us, we often abuse it. We, we use it for selfish reasons. We make it all about us. And so now we have a problem. That image is there. We are designed to glorify God. But sin makes that impossible. We, we don't want to do it. We don't want to fulfill our created purpose. As Paul would say in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think we often fail to understand, what does that mean we've fallen short of the glory of God? That he created us to honor and glorify him. Because we're made in his image. Nothing else in creation, no animals, no matter how amazing they are, are created in the image of God. We're, we're emotional beings, we're, we're physical beings, uh, we're spiritual beings. We have the capacity to have a relationship with God. Uh, I love our dog, but I can't get her to pray before she eats. She has no capacity to do that. She has no ability to, to worship God. But, but you and I, we're, we're wired for that, but sin breaks that connection. So I mentioned that Psalm 8 is quoted three times in the New Testament. We've looked at one example, Matthew 21. We need to look at the other two to follow the third way how God's glory is revealed. And that is God's glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. So you notice in, in Psalm 8 that the last part of verse 6 says, you put everything under his feet. Now we said clearly the, the main focus is on humanity. We, we've been given authority over creation as stewards that will have to give an account to God. But as you read and listen to that, it should start to say to you, That's, that sounds familiar. That, that sounds like something that ultimately Christ has secured because of his death and resurrection. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what we're seeking to do here is use the New Testament as a way of more clearly interpreting and understanding what was said in the old. Knowing the context of Psalm 8 and what its primary focus was, but also saying it's speaking much more than just about the glory of creation or the glory of God, that it moves us to consider the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, you have Paul's teaching about the resurrection and the reality of a resurrected body we will have one day. Well, notice what he says, beginning at verse 22. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. He says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, 
It is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. So you have a glimpse there that this authority is completely fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ as both fully God and fully man. If you go a little further in that chapter, notice verse 45. Verse 45 says, so it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. And you can kind of hear in that psalm and, and echo Adam as an Eve created by God in his image. Adam, in a sense, almost serving as like a, a priest. Many have described the, the Garden of Eden in the world as, as structured like a temple. So in a sense, he was to be a priest over the creation that God put him over. And yet, because of sin, that first Adam failed the test of obedience. So what do we need? We need a second Adam. We need a perfect Adam who will come and reverse what the first Adam could not do. And Paul's connecting that second Adam is Jesus Christ, who all things will be put under his authority, even though we won't see that fully until his return, and then all that will be rendered back in worship to the Father. And then one final passage. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is the third place in the New Testament where Psalm 2 is quoted. This is the longest quotation from Psalm 2 found in the New Testament. And in particular, it's going to be, as you'll see here in Hebrews 2, uh, verses 6 and following. So the quotation is, you'll see here in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, but then there's a little bit of teaching right after that. So listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So notice how the writer of Hebrews says, yes, man is created with glory and honor, but Jesus Christ in his incarnation became what he had not been, fully man, remained what he was, fully God, and came to be the second Adam. And because of his glory, Notice verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. Whether you caught it, if you're a believer, your name is there. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. That because of the glory of God unveiled in Jesus Christ, we will get to share in the glory of God. John Owen, one of my favorite Puritan divines, says, the end of all theology which is basically the study of God, 
The end of all theology is the celebration of the praise of God and his glory and grace in the eternal salvation of sinners. And doesn't that cover everything in Psalm 8? Creation, the fall, consummation, or redemption. And so you and I, we, we will never experience the glory of God if we don't learn that life is not about us. It's about God. It's about the one who created everything. It's about joyfully serving him so that we will share in his glory. Let's pray. Most high God, we are such weak and feeble and sinful. But thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have a second Adam, one who has declared us by faith holy. May we live up to the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen.